Man, it's good to be here again. I'm thankful to have the opportunity to, to see your faces. I'm happy to be counted as one among you. And I can't tell you what it means to me to be in worship service with you this morning. And um, how, how wonderful it is to me that God has blessed me to the extent that I can be among a people that are not of the world. And um, it's, I know I take it for granted, and I say it often in the stand, but I would impart to you to remember it always that you're a peculiar and particular people. I beg a, a sincere interest in your continued prayers. This time I'll stand before you this morning. I feel um, pretty weak in the knees, not because I haven't done this before, but because it's new every time. And, uh, and the, the fear of it or the brevity of it is always heavy. So uh, appreciate your continued prayers. Um, I, the one thing that's on my mind that I want to try to talk on just for a little while is... Um, how in this life that we tend to sometimes find ourselves in a position where we're just, you know, we're, we feel somewhat segregated or alone sometimes. And uh, if we pay attention to the news too much, you'll really feel alone and segregated. Or if you, if you listen to the fashions of the day or the, you know, the, the, um, the media outlets and all such things, I've had to really withdraw from a lot of that because it weighs on my light. It kind of, kind of brings it down to a lesser brightness, if you will. But we're, to, we're to supposed to let our light so shine before men that they'll behold our good works and glorify God. And by the way, the emphasis is on the light, not our works. But if we do it, if we are not just hearers of the word but doers, that's the whole thing. And I'm not about to try to preach duty, although duty is all in the Scripture. I think that um, we would do well to remember that we're, we're here to please God. And if we do that, if we, if we seek to please Him, we'll please one another. And we'll love one another. But if we try to get those two separated, it's, the fellowship is impossible, and the worship is impossible. And uh, someone said recently, I heard, and I'm not sure exactly who it was, was that the first, the, the first church is in the home, and the second one is here publicly. I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty true. I think that in the, obviously the enemy knows that. He knows we all have things in our lives or know somebody that's going through something right now, and, uh, and how... how incredible the enemy knows exactly he's like laser focused he's pinpointed on the things of the home and um, he seeks to do one thing and that is he, he knows he has but a short time that one that's one thing that he knows he also knows according to the scripture that he's been defeated that death has no more hold on us we're dead to the things uh, the condemning effects of the law because those have been met for us on the tree but what i want to talk about this morning is while we feel sometimes segregated how it is that um and the, the only the scripture, the, the one that comes to my mind so much is, is, can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, keeping that simple one scripture in Amos in mind, you and I, I mean, if two can't walk together except they be agreed, how do we get all together like this and amen and be lifted up in joy? How is it possible that those things happen? Is it because of the, the, the um, is it the, uh, is it the words of the man? Paul would say, I came not preaching man's enticing words, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He understood. Now, this was an intellectual man. He knew of the philosophies of the day. He knew about what it meant to keep the law, so to speak. He said, concerning the law, I was blameless. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. He said, when I realized that the law was always pointing a finger at me, I realized I was ruined from the beginning. So if we, we think about that, I mean, we understand we have the concept in Scripture. It's real clear when Paul uses the word dead, he means that. Completely. There's no stronger word than, than death. 
It's like I've, I've kind of looked at it like this. You can't be kind of pregnant. You can't be kind of dead. You're, it's either one or the other. And so, and I know that you may, you may go to a certain scripture and say partly dead, but we're not going to go there. We'll, we'll save that one for somebody to explain it better than I can. But, but the gist of it is that we are the one or the other. It's either black or white. It's either wrong or it's right. It's either good or it's bad. I'm one of these guys, I don't like gray shaded areas. Never have growing up, never have liked it. God says, I am God there is none else. Is that true or not? It must be. His word, thus saith the Lord, must be true. So let's go to 2 Corinthians real quick before I get off my thought here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to start my comments or start the reading. Uh, verse 15. And by the way, I appreciate your many prayers, and I appreciate your continued prayers, and uh, I, I appreciate you being here and, and sacrificing uh, time. Time is something that we sacrifice when we meet at these places like this. It's not a popular place to be at in the world, but it's our all in all. It's certainly my all in all. Fifteenth verse, it says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we know we know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know that the love of God is always fresh. It never gets stale. It never gets old. It never collects dust. It is as vibrant and as powerful and as good as it has ever been. And it's his love toward us that is amazing. When we consider that we can meet together and through the song service, I can, uh, man, I just, you know, Sometimes we can be in a place like this and we can say, you know, I, 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 I'm just kind of neutral. I'm just kind of lukewarm or whatever it might be. And I've been there. I mean, the Lord has to give the keys. He has access to the kingdom. That, that kingdom experience is what we all long for. Um, there's sometimes, though, it just doesn't go the way that you would like it for it to go. You show up to a place, you, you think, well, I'm here, Lord. What, what's the deal? But he's the deal. That's the thing. Sometimes he has to pull it back to let you know I'm the one that gives and I can take it back. I was in the stand one time thinking I had done a study on a particular subject all week and that it was going to be blessed and I couldn't wait to get in the stand and until I was up there and the smile turned upside down when I couldn't even figure out where the Old from the New Testament was. And it all shut down and I didn't even know my middle name. It was just gone. And I, I don't say him haul, but I stood about five more minutes and realized that this, this is, I'm just up here by myself. And so, but when the Lord blesses, though, it becomes something. All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. You've got two things that are opposed to each other, and they now come together. And in a nutshell, that's what I understand to be reconciled. Well, you have something that was not reconcilable before until something that made it reconcilable came. Something that was dead that could have no power because there is no power in the grave. Give it power. You have Christ coming from the portals of glory. Look, it's no mistake. I mean, we're not here because we're, we're, I trust that we're not here for a social gathering. I trust that you're here because you love the Lord and that iron sharpeneth iron and that we long to build each other up on our most holy faith so that we can 
sustain spiritually the things we can be fed the things that we are needful to be sustained with spiritually speaking we need to take what god has given us and cherish it and remember it pray for each other continue to go on that's our lot in this life is not man the, the one burden that we don't have to contend with is the one that the the pharisees couldn't bear nor could their fathers and that is they could not by works remember paul said I was blameless concerning the law until the, what, the commandment came. What does that mean? The commandment came, it's, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Well, the, there's a finger of God that writes a law in your heart. It's the commandments of God saying this. You're either ruined or you're not. But that, that's the conundrum here in the, in the flesh. We are ruined in the flesh. We're, we're a product of a ruined fall. And yet all things are become new now. So we have a newness in Christ. We are a new creature you're a new creature. There is a new birth. And that creature, if you're born of God, cannot sin. Now there is something, there is a principle in us that is without spot. It's without blemish. It, it, it abides and that's what allows us to, look, it takes the power of God to worship God. It takes the very power of God. The Spirit of God searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. When people come to a gathering like this, when they come looking for something, maybe they're not, they're not rooted or grounded in the things of God, you know they're coming. Why are they coming? What is it? Is it because, is it because the what? Is it because your bank account? Is it because you've given them money? Is it because you've given them a car to drive? Is it because you've given them, maybe that could be? It could be because of the loaves they ate, but it could be something else. It could be something in them saying there's something in this life that I don't have that I need. I don't know exactly what that is. Well, who's teaching them that? What is it in an individual that has something in them? They realize they're so discontented in the world. There's just no remedy for it. And they're looking for it. Why are they looking for it? Because the people of the world are pretty happy to be there. But there are some that are not. And the only thing that I can come up with is that they're a new creature in Christ. They're of a family that doesn't pertain to the world. They're looking for something that's not of the world. Christ would say, if the world hates you. Now, why would he say that? Because the world will hate you. The world does hate you. Hates me. But he says... Don't be, don't be amazed. Don't marvel. It's not like we're all that, right? Because we're not. He said, it's me that it hates. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory that it hates. So no wonder you're particular people because he has made you so. And the world is not a friend. It's not our friend. We're just passing through here, right? But the idea is we're not just passing through on the bench of do-nothing. We've been given some, something to work with. We've been given the truth of the kingdom of God. We've been given a preserved word by God himself, preserved through the ages, as we talked about this morning, that something that we have now that is inspired of the Spirit of God, inspiring being breathed into the men that penned it, the Spirit of God himself, and the Spirit of those men. By the way, the Spirit of God doesn't age. We know that he's eternal, right? So the same Spirit that we have when we hear the word of God read from the, from the pulpit or at family gatherings or at studies or whatever it is, that same Spirit is the Spirit that was there in the stories that we're reading about in the, in the truths of the Scripture. Witnessing with our spirit, yes, I was there. That's the same spirit that resides on the right hand of power right now that lets me know there's a man, physical man, in heaven. A God-man. I know that's true. Now, how do I know that? How is it possible for me to know that? Because His Spirit lives in me. Amen. I'm born of His Spirit. I am one. You know, the very essence of our spirit when we're born in a new birth is of God. He's a spirit. And those that worship Him... Might worship him? Must. Then, in other words, the only way to get there from here is through the Spirit. That's why the natural man won't receive it because he doesn't have it. But when it says, because you are sons, I'm, this is all, 
this has to do, it's not maybe a great discourse on re- reconciliation, but you get the gist of it. The, recon- the reconciler here is the Spirit of God. It is our spirit. In other words, when we have friends, if we're not walking with those of like minds, birds of a feather flock together. You either stay with them, and you're going to be part of their deal, or you can say, you know, I used to have this image in my mind. I used to see, here's the world and all the cool things, my friends that I might have liked to run with for a season. And then here's a cross right over here. And there's not, there's not very many over here. You know, I know, there's, I know heaven's going to be populated by innumerable now. I'm not saying, I'm saying personally in my life. I see this cross over here. And I'm looking at both directions saying, which one do I want? But you know, the love of God just beckons me. It just calls me. I've loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with love and kindness have I drawn. Like a, you take a, a bucket full of sweet water from a deep well and you draw it up. You know, that's what God does with his people. He draws them. No man can come unto me unless my Father who sent me draw him, right? He draws us. You have this, the joys in your heart because God in heaven is at work. Christ is on the, he, Christ did the work of the cross. That's true. He said it was finished. As far as your eternal destination goes, we don't have to try to save anybody for heaven. Christ, it was, he did that just fine by himself. But what we do preach is the word of reconciliation, that his people has been reconciled to him by his blood. And now that that work is done, guess what? He's not through. His work is still going because we're still in this world. So what do you mean? How's he working? He's an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an intercessor that sits on the right hand. Like like no matter where you're at, no matter what you think is abandoned, who do you think have abandoned you, you have the one that shed his blood for you that ensures that you're going to be in heaven who makes intercession for you right now. And you know that you can wake up at 3.30 in the morning He's all ears. He's all ears. He is is as, you are as precious to him as you will ever be. And that's always at the top. Because after all, he gave what? Did he give some of what he had for you? Did he give a little? You know, he he came down a little lower, made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That in him, listen, this is what he gave. You know what he gave? In him dwelt what? The fullness of the Godhead bodily. He gave all of it for you. If you want to know how special you are, there it is. You don't have to tell you, the world doesn't have to tell you how wonderful you are and how you should look at yourself so great, you know, with this grandiose idea. You deserve all this and you deserve all that. You know, we understand who's deserving here, don't we? Because we understand without the shed blood where we would be. So the whole gospel thing is not to make people, you know, we, we know this. I know this is old news here, but it's nice for me to hear it again. It's the gospel is just cheap food, it's just telling us one more time why we're going to be there. And it doesn't just tell us one more time how we're going to be there, but it also says that there's one that loves us that makes intercession for us. And so, so we, have this, uh, we have this walk in life. We can choose to walk with those that are not yoked with us that way. And then, I don't know, 100% of the time, it's never worked out for me. I mean, 100% of the time, any time in my life, young or old, when I walked with somebody who wasn't... a uh, you know, have the fear of God in their lives or whatever. Uh, it just didn't work out well. I was either going to stop and go, it's not a road I want to go down, or I would, I would tread down the road. And then what would happen? The Lord loves me enough to show me that he loves me. And I would endure maybe his hot displeasure for a season. So, <coughs> eternal God, people who were ruined by the fall, and we have now a life here, and we have it abundantly. We have it abundantly because His Spirit leads us, His Spirit guides us, and we're reconciled by this 
doctrine. We're reconciled not by the doctrine, but by the reality of the cross, by this, uh, by this imperative mor- moral law that God who cannot change. He, he, God from before time, he predetermined by an unchangeable purpose that he would have a people. He did this and he placed them in his son, knowing that there was going to be a fall. Yes, he has foreknowledge. But predestination is simply that his has to do with his people, right? Right. If you read about that, it's a it's a. If you allow me this, and I don't mean any disrespect, it's a one trick pony. It is to people, not two things, right? It's to people. But he has foreknowledge. So what? So here's what you'll experience, and I'm going to just be ready, brother Gary, because I feel like I'm winding down here. If you get into any conversation about the differences of doctrine as far as eternal life goes. Now, we're reconciled. We, we have that. We've been covering that. But here's what they'll say. Well, see, God foreknew all those. He looked down through history, right? He foreknew all of those that would make a choice for him, and then he wrote their name and placed them in his son. But there is just one major hiccup that nobody wants to talk about. Adam. Adam. Adam is the problem. Because, you know, they want to go all throughout. You can't get to history because there is no free will after Adam. Right. There is no free will after That's Adam. Right. Adam had the, the will to do one or the other, and he chose the other. He did, yeah. And because he, he made the choice for you and I. How do I know that? Because all are sinners. And why are we all sinners? It's not like we sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Right. We're all sinners by what? <clears throat> by nature. By nature. We're a product of that fall. So he rendered us incapable of making a free will choice. We're incapable of doing it. And if it's so easy to be, have free will, then just stop sinning. Just stop it. Can anybody do that? I mean, if you tell me you can do that, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have to be out on that. I struggle with it. I'm not encouraging you to do it. I'm saying we're, we're fickle creatures. Paul said, the things that I hate, I do. The things that I love, I don't do. You know, he's, he's saying there's this, I mean, he would, you know, I don't know how many disorders he'd been diagnosed with the doctors of today. He's saying, I want to do this, but I don't do it. I love this stuff, but I, I, I and I, and I, but I don't do it. I hate this stuff, and this is what I'm doing. It's, just, it's like this, right? This way it is. Do I, should I go to church today? I mean, they'll have services tomorrow. Yeah, I want to go today. Well, why do you want to go today? Because there's something I need. What is it that you need? I might need fellowship. I might need some prayers. I might, not pe- I might need just people that, that I can look at and say they believe what I believe. Right. You know, they believe what I believe. You know why? Because we're reconciled. That's it. We have the same spirit. Because you are sons, that he sends the spirit of his son into your heart. Because you are, that's first, that's the cause, right? Because, what is the cause? That he placed you in Christ before the world began. Because you are sons, before what? Before the fall, you are sons. Because in time, you are sons already before the fall, God sends the spirit of his son into your heart, those that he placed in Christ before time. And that spirit cries what? Abba. That is, a, that is the same way that Christ used it. Abba. Abba. There's only one time that changed. He referred to God as Father all the way up until the cross. And why was that? What happened at the cross? You say, what are you talking about? Well, you, you recall, there was one moment in the cross there where he said, My God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And a lot of people may get fixed on the question. Why is Christ asking this question? Well, first of all, it's to be understood the wording here, my God. He didn't say my Father. He was now your representative and my representative as the Paschal Lamb, as the one who would be sacrificed. Now that God was rendering on his son all of his wrath against sin. 
this is what was going on. I can't begin to perceive that. I can't begin to, you know, the, the physical uh, sufferings that Christ endured of man, yeah, they, his visage was marred more so than any man. It was no doubt that he was scourged and that no man could have endured the probably the, the scourging that he, that he took, the spitting and the smiting and the mock worship and all that. But the one thing that goes beyond comprehension is the fact that the law was satisfied on the tree. That the law was satisfied. In other words, what was required of the law of a sinner? The wages of sin is death. Death. What, well, it's just a temporary. No, 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 no. Complete death. Complete darkness. Complete eternity. You say, how did he meet that? at three? And, and I know he was on there six hours, but three hours of darkness. How did he meet that? At whatever time frame he met it, how did he do it in such a short time? I don't have any idea other than he's God. But when he called out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's... Two main things come to my mind, at least. First of all, that he's no longer using the term my father. He is now our representative as man because we needed a representative that, we could, re- that could relate to us. And he chose to do that for you and I. The second thing is so that you would know that nobody stayed with him. Not his disciples, not the father. He trod that path all alone. And if you think you've ever been alone, you haven't become close to being that kind of alone. You, you, he was forsaken so that you would never be. You can always call out to God and he'll always hear you. This was a time when God would not hear, but God would be exercising his hot indignation against our sins on his son. And we're reconciled by his son. We owe him what? Our best efforts. We owe him our best efforts. And, And God help me to give my best efforts going forward. And God help you. Thank you. Amen. God of love, oh, hear our prayer. say amen to, to what brother John Mark spoke to us and, and feel the Lord was certainly in the matter and um, um, yeah I can say at, at piggyback to you if you don't mind brother John Mark that um, I think in that moment the Lord Jesus was pointing out to us that his father was not treating him like a son but like a sacrifice amen. right Forbear with me, please. Um, first time I, I came here was 24 years ago. And um, many of y'all have heard me say that was a weekend that changed my life. I had a love for the Lord and for His people, but I don't think I'd ever seen the church up to that point like that that weekend. And uh, when I got here that weekend, if memory serves, and this seemed to happen a lot back then, um, when I got upon the grounds, there was something in my body that tingled. It had a fear. And I've been worried lately. How come I don't feel that way uh, now? 
I felt that way when I came on the grounds today. Uh, a tingling and a fearfulness. And I pray to God I don't do anything to mess that up. Um, your song service fed my soul and I felt the Lord Jesus singing in the midst of us. Um, I guess I need to get together and I'm, I ask for your, your forgiveness for that. But um, You know when you have friends that you're close to and you don't see them for a while, sometimes you can forget how much you miss them. And I feel that way about you this weekend. Um, we didn't exactly live close to you before. We live further now, but um, for some of you anyway. And uh, seeing your faces and getting to hug you has um, just reminded us how much we miss you. And we thank the Lord for your fellowship. Um, I hope that what I try to preach to you today will not be something that hurts that fellowship. <laughs> um, there's a... Um, don't be scared. You're going to agree with uh, my principles. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but there's. A <laughs> um, I read some. I was reading about some parables recently, and um, a man's writings, of course. And um, there was something he introduced, and he introduced it as this is not tr- this is not what the Lord's given us in His Word, and and I'd never heard of that before, and I thought. Well, I've already not agreed with everything that he said, so you know, let me look into that. And and the thing that he said it was not, I started seeing. Wow, uh, there's some pretty beautiful comparisons there. Um, so I, I'm gonna give a little bit of a disclaimer, and I'm afraid to do that. But um, you know, when I get done, you might say, well, I don't necessarily see the comparisons as much as you did, but I have a great confidence you're gonna agree with the principles of what I say. You know, even if you may, might disagree with that. But I think, I think you're going to agree with me. Um, so in Matthew chapter 13, I want to turn your attention there. And I really don't intend on reading anything from that, but I want to point your attention to... There's a, there's a grouping of seven parables that are in Matthew chapter 13, right? There's, and you might say, well, there's seven and a half parables because there's one that kind of wraps up the whole thing at the end. But... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to those seven parables and um, want to look at those really as a grouping of those parables that the Lord gave seven of them there and he tended to use similar language for each one where he said the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like unto this, the kingdom of heaven is like unto that. Well, there's a grouping of another seven that I think has a, a, a good connection between the two if you look at them on a one for one. And that's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. And I know you might say, don't start a, a meeting, you know, preaching from the book of Revelation. But, you know, there's some beautiful things here in Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, with these seven churches. Right? So there's seven churches here that the Lord's speaking to. And there's a consistent pattern with those, too. When he starts to preach, uh, starts to tell us about these churches, he says, unto the church at Ephesus, right. Unto the angel of the church at Pergamos, right. To the angel of the church at this, right. And with each one, when he finishes up, you know, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So there's a consistent pattern with each of these seven that he says. And there's some similarities with each of these seven churches. And there's also uh, some distinctions. And he's drawing out for the most part, and there's one exception, I believe. But for the most part, he's saying, you know, here I see the good things that you're doing. 
and you know maybe we'll kind of get to this pattern later on in the weekend if we have an opportunity and I don't mean to be uh, uh, presumptuous but but he's he goes to the churches here and he's basically saying here are the good things that you're doing and I will raise my hand and say I'm bad about this <laughs> I tend to get to the problem focus on the problem try to fix the problem and forget Oh, let's talk about the good things, right? Let's talk about the good things that are happening. Well, we need to learn from the Lord's wonderful pattern. And the Lord here, he identified good things going on with the churches. And, and I see your works, and I see the things that you're doing, and I see these blessings. And, you know, I'm going to commend you for some things, right? And then he says, nevertheless. And then he gets on to the negatives. And no matter what church you're a part of, I suspect... Uh, there's a good chance that the Lord's going to be able to uh, look at each one of us and say, okay, I see these good things. Here's some things that are commendable about, about you as a church body. Uh, nevertheless, you know, there are some problems. There are some things that we need to work on, some things that we need to do better, right? And then he always concludes with each of these seven churches uh, some glorious language where he tells us, in my understanding, what he's saying, but here's what's waiting for you. Right here's something that is waiting for you, and and uh, you, we might we might disagree on this, but I uh, to to use the old saying, I just feel like there's there's too much that he says and too much that's promised at the end of those churches for it to be something in this time world. I really think that it's something that he's saying here's you know here's something that's coming for you one day. Well, the first of those parables in Matthew chapter 13 talks about the sower and the seed. Now this has been a lightning rod among old Baptists, you know, several years ago, and something that became you know, a pretty contentious argument, but the the brief synopsis of the parable of the sower and the seed. Let me you know recapture it for anybody in the congregation that's not as familiar. It's a it's a familiar story. The Lord told about it in three of his four gospels. It ought to be something that we take strong consideration in because he told it to us three different times, right? But in the sower of the seed, the Lord tells us uh, a man went forth sowing seed. And he, he tells them uh, about what happens here and said, and some fell among you know, the wayside, some fell, fell among the stony places, some fell among the thorns, and some fell upon the good ground, right? And he tells us what happens in those circumstances. Some had it taken away that which was sown in their heart. Uh, there were others that it grew up fast, but then it withered away fast. You know, that which starts and sprouts up fast doesn't usually last very long. And then he says there's others that they started to, to grow up, but before it could bear any profitable fruit, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches started choking it out, and it didn't, bore forth, it didn't bring forth fruit unto perfection. Now, I know the ministry here is going to grab onto that phrase and say, yeah, yeah, that's an important phrase, and it is, but if you'll forgive me, I'm going to pass over that. But then he talks about the last ones where he says, and then some fell upon the good ground, some and brought forth fruit, some thirtyfold some 60-fold and some 100. And then he, he just went on about his business. And the disciples asked him a question, saying, Lord, tell us the parable of the sower and the seed. You know, tell us about this parable. And, and the Lord Jesus rebuked them. Basically, do you not know this parable? Then how are you going to know any parables? Well, as the Lord told these seven parables, it's kind of like when you're doing uh, a lesson in school where they start to show you some examples of some things and they they work out some problems for you and say you know here's how you do it now here's some other problems and you're on your own on on how to answer these you need to learn from the pattern that we just had in order to be able to answer these others the lord did that with these seven parables the lord gave us the interpretation of two of them and then for the other five he didn't give us any interpretation 
It's kind of like a lesson book in school, isn't it? Where it says, here, here's the interpretation of this parable, here's the interpretation of this parable, and I'm going to give you five more. You go study and meditate on these. Right? You go figure these out. Now, we're not going to do it without the Lord's help, right? But as the Lord is giving this parable, he's, saying, he's talking about the potential responses, and I'm going to add, of the child of God to the gospel. Now, somebody might say, well, they don't all sound like children of God to me. Well, a light bulb went off with me here recently, and so sometimes you can be old and have a light bulb finally you know, click on. But one light bulb that came on to me about this parable is that the Lord did not address a response to the gospel by those that hated it from the very beginning, right? He didn't address it that way, did he? The Lord didn't say, well, here's how the wicked of this world responded, and they started arguing, and they started throwing stones and stuff like that. He didn't do that, did he? The Lord didn't address the wicked's response to the delivering of the word of God. And so I'm going to clarify this and say the Lord is giving the response of the child of God to his word. Right? What response is going to happen when the Lord delivers his word? Now, there's got to be a preparation for there to be a good response, right? There's got to be a preparing. Brother Sonny said you're a praying people. You've been praying for this meeting that's coming up, right? And that's part of the way that we prepare for the hearing of God's word is by praying. We also do that by giving diligent heed to studying, right? You don't just show up into the pew and say, I'm ready, feed me preacher, right? We need to be studying ourselves. And it's a matter of breaking up the ground. It's a matter of making it conducive for the seed to come into the ground. And then it's a matter of going and, like Brother John Mark said, doing the Word of God. Right? Not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the Word. That cultivated ground still has to have the weeds taken out of it. Still, you know, if the birds come along and do something to it, you've got to take care of that. You've got to keep the animals and the predators out of the way. You've got to pull up the, th the thorns aren't gone forever, are they? Oh my goodness, you can hear the blessed word of God and hear it preached and say, oh, that's great, and then go about your own business and it won't mean anything, right? You've got to continue to pull the thorns out or they're going to grow up and they're going to choke the word. So the Lord is showing us here, here's a response to the gospel. Here are potential responses to the gospel. So when we think about responses to the gospel, we can look at that as fruit, right? And the Lord said, let your light so shine that others may see your what? Your good works, right? They may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. As we should always calibrate, I think, or, or clarify. That doesn't mean that others will see our good works and pat us on the back and say, oh, you did so good, that was so nice for you to give money to so-and-so, you preached so good. No, it's so that the Lord will receive glory, right? Let others see your good works that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. So another way of looking at the response of the gospel is by fruit. Right? Would you have that? Would you agree with me about that? That the, way, the response of the gospel is fruit being born. Well, when the Lord spoke to the church at Ephesus, one of the first things he starts to tell them is, I see thy works. Right? I see thy works. He's saying, you've responded to the gospel, and you've put it in practice with the actions that you are taking, with the works that you're doing, he said, I see your works. And he starts commending them for the things that they're doing. They're good tests of doctrine. They can put the doctrine to the test to see is a man preaching what's right or what's not. Well, that's being a good hearer of the word and being a doer of the word, isn't it? Well, then, when he gets to the nevertheless part, he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. He says, because you've left your first love. 
Boy, that's been something that has scared me. I hope it scares you. Because I hope we're all afraid of leaving our first love. I hope we'll be honest enough with ourselves to say if we have seasons where we've left our first love. But you see, we can go to what the Lord is telling here, and we can say, well, works don't always mean love. And that's true. Right? That, that's true. We can be so legalistic. I'm going to do this. I'm regimented and disciplined in this. And I'm going to do this with regularity. But we can have our heart far from it. And we're doing it from a repetitious standpoint, right? Or, we can, or we're doing it from a point of view where we can say, look at me and look how much I read or how much I study or how much whatever, right? And it beca- can become a good habit, but a habit where the heart's not in it. And something that is so curious about what the Lord says here in response to them leaving their first love, He says, remember the first works. Wow. He says, you're working... I see it, this, this is good, but your heart isn't really in it. And in order to get your heart in it, here's some works you need to go do. That's amazing, isn't it? Because he's saying the works aren't enough, but in order to get your heart right, go do some works. So we, an easy way to think about that is with marriages, right? Where it's the, you know, the honeymoon states, you don't have to work at anything, right? Everything's fine. Oh, you squeeze the middle of toothpaste. That's great. Isn't that cute? That's wonderful. <laughs> right? I mean, there, you do no wrong in that phase of the relationship, right? <laughs> but then a little time goes on, and you know, we're sinners dwelling together, and, and we have some frustrations with each other, right? The Lord is giving a reminder here, just like with a husband and wife. He said, if you find that it's getting a little bit stale, or if you find out you know, that there doesn't seem to be the love that there once was, Go do the things you used to do for them in the beginning. Right? Go do those first works with them. And you'll find your heart following. So, the next parable that the Lord gives, He's telling us about how the Lord, or it's a picture of the Lord, but He's he's saying a, a, a master of the field, He went and sowed seed in the field. He sowed wheat. And, you know, as He slept, an enemy came and He sowed tares. And the tares started growing up. And people started, at first they couldn't identify it, right? First it says, well, the wheat and the tares, they look the same. I can't get into you into the Jewish horticulture of that day. I've, I've heard it said for a while they look the same. And then when the fruit starts to be manifested, then you see the difference, right? Difference between the wheat and the tares. So the servants come along and they say, Lord, should we uh, tear up, uh, gather up these tares? And the Lord says, no. <laughs> No, no, don't, don't gather up the tares lest you pull up the wheat also. He said, but wait till the time of the harvest. Boy, don't you love, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but he says, wait for the time of the harvest. And he says, gather up the tares to be burned, but gather up the wheat into my barn. Well, I remember reading that several years ago. Just that word barn just jumped out of the page. Isn't, this, isn't it a glorious thought to be gathered into the Lord's barn? You know, one day you and I are going to be gathered into the Lord's barn, but there's going to be nothing about it that looks like what we think of as barns in this life because it's going to be such a glorious place where the Bible says, I have not seen, neither ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them. Right? And, and it will seem like an insult to call it a barn, but the Lord's liking it unto a place where you gather in that which is precious to you. Right? So here's... A parable that tells us about the enemy being an attack, right? The enemies at play. The enemy's trying to mess things up. 
Well, when the Lord starts to talk to the second church here, he says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. He's talking about some life and death things here. At the end of that parable, there's some life and death. There's those that are going to be dead. There's those that are going to be alive. And he says, I know thy works and tribulations and poverty. Oh, but thou art rich. Right? He says, you're poor financially, but you're rich in the things of the Spirit of God. You know, we have some choices to make in life on which, which route would we rather take, right? Will we rather be financially rich or spiritually rich? Sometimes it's as simple as a choice like that. But thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. You see, they're saying they're one of you, but they're not one of you. The tares at first, when they're growing up with the wheat, they look like they're one of the wheat, but they're not one of the wheat. And it just takes a little while for that to be manifested. Let time, a little time go, let the fruit start to bear, and you'll be able to identify you know, one from the other. That's not to say we need to be fruit inspectors to, to make the decision ourselves, you understand, although we have to make some judgments in the church. You know, but he's saying, they say they're a part of you, but they're not. They're the synagogue of Satan. Now, you might say, that sounds pretty harsh. The Lord's just telling the truth, right? The Lord's telling the truth, and that same true truth is there in that parable of the wheat and the tares, because here are those that are of Satan, right? They're of Satan. Well, look at how he finishes uh, talking with this church. It says, for not, fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. See, he's talking about the devil's influence here upon the field and upon the kingdom here. And he says, that ye may, uh, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee, what? A crown of life. So say, so here's something that's waiting for you. Here's a crown of life that's waiting. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. You see that parable between, that, that comparison between the parable of the wheat and the tares and what he's saying to the church here? He said, there's a second death that's coming for the tares, but you're not part of that second death. You don't have to worry about that second death. The Lord has given you something far better than what the tares are going to get. You're getting the opposite. You're going to have uh, eternal life experience. We're having eternal life now. We're recipients of eternal life. But he's saying, here you're going to be gathered up into the Lord's barn. You're not going to see that second death that the tares are going to have. You're going to be gathered into the Lord's barn and be at home with him. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, the third parable of Matthew 13, I think I've got the order right in my head. And some, you're free to jump up and correct me if I start to get something wrong here. I'm, I'm going to try not to turn back and forth. But the next parable that the Lord tells about, he says, Here's a parable of, the, of a mustard seed being planted. Right? He says, A mustard seed goes into the ground. It's the least of all the seeds. And I've read some place where those mustard seeds are like 0.1 inches in diameter, right? So less than an eighth of an inch, here's the size of this mustard seed. And he says it gets planted in the ground, and it grows up to be the greatest tree among the herbs. Now, we're not dealing with a California redwood here, right? Somebody might say, well, that mustard seed, that mustard tree, that's nothing. Grows 20 feet tall, 20 feet wide, branches going long and wide that's nothing look at the california redwood right some folks might say that so what's so good about a mustard seed mustard tree 
when you got some of these big and glorious oak trees and things like that. You know, the Lord is drawing a distinction here. He's saying it's not something that's going to impress the world. But when he talks about this mustard seed being planted, if memory serves in the three Gospels that tell about this, one he says it was planted in a field, or in his field. One it says he was planted in the earth. Another says a man planted it in his garden. Now somebody might say, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. There's no contradiction in the Bible, right? When he planted in the earth, it was in his garden. When he planted in his field, his garden's in his field. That's not real hard to reconcile, is it? <laughs> right? So he goes and he plants this in his garden. Well, that makes my mind think about Song of Solomon. When he's describing the beautiful church of Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, a garden enclosed. Right? A garden enclosed. And he describes that garden also as my sister, my spouse. We've got a couple engaged couples here this weekend, and it's easy to draw attention to them, and I'm glad for the attention that they're getting. But I like to remind God's unmarried people, <laughs> you know, you need to see them as your sister before you see them as your spouse. Right? You agree with that, Brother David? Yeah, 100%. My sister and my spouse. He didn't say my spouse and my sister. It's not a good recipe to get married and then hope they become your sister in Christ. That's, that's not a good recipe. Right, But it's a wonderful recipe Amen. if you see them as your sister first and then as your spouse. Amen. Because then if you never become spouses anyway, well, you're still brother and sister in Christ. That's right. good. So <laughs> it's a garden enclosed. This mustard seed is not planted among the California redwoods and it's not planted among the big oak trees, the Georgia pines or anything like that. It's planted in a garden. It's planted in a special place. It's planted in a place where the stones have been removed and there's care given to it to pull the thorns out. And this tree spreads out. It can spread out as wide as it becomes tall. And he says the fowls of the air come and lodge in it. Right? So the fowls of the air come and lodge in this. Now I've never seen, it might, have, it might happen and you might be able to jump in and correct me, but do this one later. You can correct me now on other things, but correct me later on this. But I've never seen a bird climb up a tree in order to get onto the branches. I doubt any of you have ever seen that. These birds get, in, birds get into a tree and they make their nest with something that to us humans looks supernatural. Something that we can't relate with. So just by flapping their wings and soaring in the air and coming and lodging into a tree. Right? To us, that looks supernatural, doesn't it? We can't fly. People make up science fiction stories about a person with the ability to fly because we can't fly. But by the grace and spirit of God, you and I can soar. You and I can soar above the things of this world. You and I can take upon the wings of the morning, so to speak, and we can come and dwell someplace where by nature we would not be able to dwell. You and I can't dwell in the church by nature. You and I can't say, well, I've made enough money. I've shook enough hands, kissed enough babies. Uh, you can take me into the church now. It doesn't work that way, does it? But what we want to see when somebody comes down the aisle to be joined into the church to follow the Lord in baptism, we kind of like to see some tears, don't we? We like to see some regret over the sins that a person's committed. Right? There's something that's got to be against nature in order to dwell in the church. And he says the fowls of the air, they come and they lodge there. Well, you and I have a choice to make in life that we're going to lodge in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I hope the Lord has blessed me and my family to build a nest in the church of the Lord Jesus. Amen. And I hope and beg the Lord that all the days of our life we will dwell in the house of the Lord. And I beg that my children are going to teach their children how to dwell in the house of the Lord. And oh, I beg God that for generations to come, that they're going to love the Lord with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, body, and strength. And they're going to teach their children to do the same thing. I beg the Lord that my children and grandchildren and so on are going to lodge in the beautiful mustard tree of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are medicinal properties to mustard. I had no idea about that. It's a cancer preventative, not the yellow mustard that we make up, you understand, but the seed that comes from the tree, it's a cancer preventative. It's, you know, the Bible teaches us about their word doth eat as does a canker, right? Like a cancer. And it's, a cancer can spread. And we pray when folks have cancer that it's not going to spread, that it's going to be removed so that that won't continue to afflict, right? It's got antioxidant powers, which means it's good for your heart. You know, what comes and what's the fruit that's born from the church of the Lord Jesus, it is so good for your heart, isn't it? Amen. Doesn't it make your heart swell? Those on the road to, Dema to Emmaus, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us by the way? And don't you feel that way when you hear the gospel proclaimed in the church of the Lord Jesus? You say, oh, my heart was just burning at hearing about the great love of God. Right? So he's saying, here's a place for you to dwell, a place for you to lodge. Well, the church at Pergamos, he says, <coughs> I know thy works and where thou dwellest. I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Well, where did they dwell? Well, we know that they were in Asia, right? Even where Satan's seat is. You know, we got some old Baptist churches. I, I pastor one of them. <laughs> Try to pastor one of them. Uh, not real good parts of town, <laughs> right? And we got some old Baptist churches that we love to go to that we don't really love to be in those neighborhoods, <laughs> right? And it's commendable if a church finds itself in a bad and rough environment around it but they're still holding to the faith. They're keeping the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, I'm not endorsing the location, you understand? Um, something that we need to be prayerful about. But throughout the history of the church, the church has dwelt and lived in places of severe persecution. And by the way, one of the best ways to get church growth is to have persecution. We want the church to grow, right? We don't really ask for persecution, though, do we? That's something that frightens us, makes us afraid. But the church throughout history has prospered and flourished in times of persecution. And John is telling, the, the Lord here is telling the church through John, he said, you're dwelling in Satan's seat, but you're not living like Satan. You're living differently. Well, I found out that the mustard tree is a water-seeking tree. It can survive in hot and dry areas because its roots are trying to find the water every bit that it can. And you and I, as part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should have that same characteristic, right? That we say, you know, it might be a dry and thirsty season. It might be that the preacher hasn't been preaching all that good. But, oh, we're just begging the Lord for some of his spirit. We are seeking his water. We're seeking his spirit. We're trying to find it any old way that we can. Right? And he starts to tell them about those that dwell among them. 
And I think it's a good comparison to that um, parable of the mustard seed. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. You know, birds fly up into the trees and they start to eat. And nobody really sees them eating when they're up in the tree. Whether mama bird is feeding a baby bird, the world, by and large, doesn't see that happening. It's a pretty marvelous sight when we get a little close-up view of that, right? But the birds, and they come, and they're eating in a hidden way. You and I come to the church of the Lord Jesus, and it's a hidden way too, isn't it? It's a little bit of a hidden way because the world's not perceiving what we're doing here. Folks can pass by. It's not a very busy street, but folks can pass by here and see a bunch of cars, but not really be caring about what's going on. But the Lord says He's got something beautiful and glorious for us, and He talks about a special name. Well, to the church, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. When he says that his eyes are like a flame of fire, I don't take that to mean that it's like charcoal burning, or a brush pile burning where there's a bunch of smoke that's pushing up, right? He's talking about a pure flame, right? A flame that is pure, it's not smoky, but it's, got, it's so vivid, and it's so bright, right? And there's a brightness to it. And when he talks about feet like fine brass, that's the kind of brass that's shiny, right? It's the kind of brass that you can look in and see your reflection in because it's just on fire and it's clear, <coughs> right? And he says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. I think he's saying your works are just getting better and better. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel which calleth herself a prophet to teach and to, su- to, su- to seduce my servants. Well, so he's talking about here a purity and a spiritual cancer, if I can say it that way, right? He's saying something here is a purity. Here's something that the Lord is a pure Lord. He's a pure God. He's morally upright and there's no fault or sin or blemish in him. His eyes are like fire. His feet are like fine brass. From head to toe, he's perfect. Right? Would you agree with me about that? For head, from head to toe, he said, the Lord is shining. He's, a, he's, he's sterling in his moral character, and there's no fault in the Lord. But then here's another side of what's going on here. And he says, you've got this sin going on in the church, and it's something that's spreading. Right? Well, that fourth parable in Matthew chapter 13 is a woman that takes leaven, and she hides it in three measures of meal until the whole be leavened. So, righteousness can be contagious, right? When we're around folks that are behaving themselves and they're conducting themselves in a good and godly way, uh, that can be something that there is some, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Peer pressure. There can be such a thing as positive peer pressure. When others around you are diligent in prayer, others around you are diligent in, in study, then that can rub off on us too, right? And it can be something that spreads in a beautiful and glorious way. But we know that the Bible teaches us that sin can be like leaven, that a little leaven, leaven at the lump. And some sin that's not dealt with can spread throughout the church and it can cause great damage. Right? The Lord is showing us here about the difference between something pure, uh, something that's pure all the way throughout, and something that can be uh, damaged all the way throughout. Either way, it can spread, and we've got to be careful for that, and we've got to watch out and keep, that, uh, keep the sin from spreading. We've got, to, we've got to deal with those things, even though they're difficult. Behold, I will cast her into bed with them that commit adultery with her, 
uh, into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will make her children, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. You know what it means to search the reins and the hearts? The Lord says, I'm looking all through you, right? I'm looking all through you. I want to see what's spreading in you. Well, what about you and me? You know, there's, there's faults and failures I have that spread throughout my character that I've got to fight against and I've got to try to uh, keep under my body and keep it in subjection. Right, but the Lord's saying, I search the reins and the heart. David said, search me, O God, and know me, and purge me of every evil way that is within me. Right, David had such a desire to serve God that he's saying, search all within me. Look for everything, Lord, and point it out and purge it from me. Right? That's a fearful thing to pray when you're misbehaving, isn't it? Uh, that's a fearful prayer because you might say, well, I see enough already. I don't have to ask the Lord to start shining His bright searchlight into me. But the Lord trieth the heart and the reins, or the reins and the heart in this case. You see, He's talking about avoiding things that can spread. Now, I'm not saying that in that parable in Matthew 13 that He's talking about a sinful thing spreading. I think He's talking about, hey, here's a spreading of the things of God. Here's a spreading of the church. It started in Jerusalem and it spread into Asia. It went into the Gentile world. Eventually it went over into Europe. It's come to North America, thank God. You know, he's talking about, I think, a spread of the kingdom of God. Well, look at how he closes this with this church. He says, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. You know, he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, right? When the Lord sends something spreading, the Lord is able to do that. Well, he says unto the angel in chapter 3, and the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Now he's saying, you think you're alive, but you're dead. You're having, some, you're having troubles you don't know about. You think everything's going good? You think you've got it all locked up? But it's not locked up. You're in trouble. Well, there's something interesting about the geography of Sardis. Sardis was on a mountain, kind of at the foot of a mountain, with a river that flowed right in front of it that was like a moat that made it hard for enemies to come in. And they had a, what well, was something I read said that they have a, like a natural boundary around them with a mountain on the one side and the river in front. And he says, this was a defense that was considered to be almost impregnable. Right? Almost impregnable. But you know how defenses of men go. Right? And there's a couple times in their history where somebody was able to get across that river, come into town, and, you know, to conquer them when they weren't watching. He says, you've got something precious, hold on to it, and watch out for the thief that's coming that's going to take it. Now, Sardis... The name Sardis, one source I looked at said that Sardis means Prince of Joy. Prince of Joy. Well, I'm going to turn back to Matthew chapter 13 and, and look at this uh, parable here. Excuse, I haven't flipped yet and now I'm fumbling through my flipping. Excuse me. In Matthew chapter 13, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to is likened to treasure hidden a field, the which when a man hath found, he 
hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. See, he says he found a hidden treasure. And when he found this hidden treasure, he hid it. Well, the Bible says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You know, we might think that we've got a treasure, that we've got something that's special that nobody can take from us. And by the power of God, that can be true. But let he that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. We can just be just like Sardis where we have a great joy and we love it, we adore it, we cherish it, but we don't guard it. And like I've heard preached before, I believe Brother Philip made this illustration. You know, there's things in life that we hold like this and there's things that we hold like this. You know, there are th- precious th- the precious things in our life we need to hold very preciously and hold them right close to our bosom, right? And when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's like treasure found in a field. And we need to hide that. We need to go and sell all that we have to buy the field. You notice he didn't buy the treasure, he bought the field, right? Well, sometimes when we're in the church of the Lord Jesus, there's some difficult things that come up. And that's why the Bible says that we're not to be uh, like children, but like men, right? Be strong and of good courage. Troubles are going to come in the church. There's going to be problems and there's going to be hardships. But if you're only going to take the pleasures and the joys and you're going to hightail it during the hard times, you're not being a man of God, right? You're not being a woman of God. We're supposed to be strong and of good courage. Right? We're not supposed to just hightail it out when things go wrong. And my reminder for me and for you is we're not just buying the treasure, we're buying the whole field. Right? We've got to buy all of the field, which means the hardships that come with it, because the hardships do not compare with the joy that we receive from this beautiful kingdom. Right? It's a beautiful kingdom where we buy all of it in order to have the joys that come with that. And we need to hold it precious. It can be taken from us. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your last name is. I don't care what, member, what church your membership is at. It can be taken from us. It can be taken from us. <clears throat> then he goes on to <clears throat> the church in Philadelphia. He says, The angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. The next parable is a man that's searching. The first man, it doesn't sound like he's necessarily searching, but he found something. The second man here in these two uh, cousin or twin parables, he is searching. He's searching for goodly things, and he found a pearl of great price. He also went and sold everything he had for that great pearl, right? You and I have found a pearl of great price, have we not? We found something that is so precious and it's worth everything in our life. And being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ costs us exactly that. It costs us everything. You know, when he told us about a parable about a man uh, that said, you know, he's not, you're not going to build a tower. First, you first uh, come up with the cost to decide if you can build it or not. A king's not going to go out to battle with another king Unless you first decide, can I with my 10,000 beat him with the 20,000? You see, you first have to count up the cost. Well, it's like that with the church, isn't it? But what the Lord is telling us here is it costs you everything. It costs you and me everything to be a disciple of Jesus. Because everything you're wearing, every dollar in your wallet, everything about your family, every child that you've ever had, they are the Lord's first. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
right? Being the Lord's disciple cost us everything. If He tells us to go do something, we need to do it. He says to sacrifice something, we need to sacrifice it. He tells us to stop doing something, we need to stop doing it. Right? If we truly want to be His disciple, it should be, Lord, everything I have is Thine. Because I have nothing without the Lord, right? What did you have that you were not first given, right? Everything we have is a blessing from God. Everything worth having is a blessing from God. And we need to consider it that way. And we need to be willing to sell everything we have for that great pearl. That pearl of great price. The Lord's saying here, you're not strong enough to keep it. But I'm strong enough and I'll keep it for you, right? <clears throat> then the church at Laodicea. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot, so that because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That should also be scary for us, right? That should also be scary and fearful for us to say, you know what, I don't want to be lukewarm. I heard somebody, I think, soften this story of, about the parable, and they were you know, talking about something of food in that day, and I don't remember. I don't remember what it was, but they were saying, you know, this is good when it's cold. It's good when it's hot. When it's lukewarm, you know, nobody likes that. I, I don't understand the parable that way. Uh, I understand this being like a black and white kind of thing, like Brother John Mark said. You know, <laughs> if somebody's cold on the things of God, you know, they're distant. They're away from it. They're really not going to have a big impact on the church. But lukewarmness can be very destructive because it looks like discipleship. It looks like following the Lord. But it's leaving something behind, right? Well, I'm going to give the Lord as much as I can, but I'm keeping some of this, some of this back, right? Like Ananias and Sapphira, right? The Lord's saying, I want all of you. I want all of you. You know, when men go about preaching tithing among the old Baptist church and they say, oh, you've got to give 10%. You've got to give 10%. I think that's born from frustration. And they overcompensate and say, okay, yeah, you've got to give 10%. percent got to make sure everybody's you know, giving what they, what they want. You know, the Apostle Paul said, I don't want yours, I want you. Right? I don't want yours, I want you. And if I've got you, I don't mean I've got you, but if the, Lord, if the Lord's able to say, I've got you, then everything that we have is His. Not just 10%, but all of it. Right? He says, I don't want yours, I want you. And I can just about promise you that every man that's, that's counted in the ministry in the house today, we feel the same way. I don't care about your money. I want you. I want you. I want you walking with the Lord. I want you to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and a faithful member of the church of the Lord Jesus. I'm not worried about your money so much. I want you. Right? I'm trying to reach your heart. And if the Lord will bless us to reach hearts in our preaching, the other stuff takes care of itself, doesn't it? And we don't have to come up with some man-made rule to say, here, make sure you do this and this and this. So the church of Laodicea had a problem of not really being close with the Lord. Well, the Lord told in this last parable in Matthew chapter 13, except for the half parable, that, you know, at the end, it said the Lord told about this last parable about a net being drawn and gathering up all kinds of animals. And he separated the good from the bad. Some are going to be cast out. Others are going to be uh, brought in. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I commend thee to buy me gold tried in the fire. Well, at the end, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This isn't knocking on the door of the heart of a sinner, saying, If you'll just answer, then I'll born you again and save you. That's not what he's saying, is it? He's talking about a gathering in to him. 
Now, there's a gathering incoming one day that we have nothing to do with. But I sure want to be gathered into them on days like this and in moments like this. And I hope and trust that you do too. So the Lord says in the last of this, a half parable, if you'll allow me to say it that way. He talks about a man bringing the things of God. He says he needs to bring from the storehouse both old and new. We need new illustrations. But they need to be new illustrations of the same old truths. There's no such thing as a new truth. No such thing as your truth and my truth. There's the truth. There's the faith once delivered to the saints. And we don't need to corrupt that. We don't need to change it. We don't need to say, oh, the Lord gave you a faith once, but let's have a new faith. Let's have a different faith. Let's revive the faith. Let's revise the faith. No, we don't need to do that. It's the same faith. We need new illustrations of the same old truths, right? Well, there's technology. That's brought some new illustrations to our, uh, to our minds, things that we can say, oh, look at this. It shows us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all right to have some new illustrations but may we never have any new truths because there's no such thing. It's just a repackaged lie no matter how you bring it about, right? Now, if you got a Bible uh, in, your, in your possession right here that's got a map on the back of it, I want to encourage you to turn and look at the map. And you can do it now, you can do it later. But when you look at these seven cities that these churches are in, it's a tight-knit group of cities. And when you look at these cities... And you start with one, and you go around to the other. They're not in a perfect circle. They're not in any discernible shape. I, my imagination can kind of turn and look and see, eh, it looks a little bit like the shape of a heart maybe, but uh, not, not so much. But these, these churches, you look at the back, back of the map. It's the last one in my Bible. Um, you know, the churches in the first century, uh, it's the map of the first century of the church or something like that. But there's, there's like a route that goes from one to another, and it almost looks like a, a, an Indy car race where they're racing in town and they got this, this race, or a bicycle path where people are doing a race, or a marathon. Hey, go, I don't know why somebody wants to run a marathon, I have no idea. But here, you get on this, this, this track, and you run this several times, and if you're looking at this like that type of route, you'd say, well, I don't really know where it starts and where it ends. And there's seven of them. Well, our, calendar, our calendar's like that, isn't it? Well, we've got Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right? And it starts back all over again. And when you're going from one day to the next, you don't really feel like, well, mine this week or mine that week. When we've got our musical notes, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do, there's seven of them. Starts back with another one and just keeps going over and over and over again. There's a, there's a route here with these churches. It just goes from one to another, one to another. You can just go back and forth between these seven churches. And my point is, there's a, it's a number of perfection. And there's a tight-knitness to these churches. And we want that to be that way among our churches, don't we? That you can go in and out from one to another, back and forth. And there's going to be some different spirits, like with these churches, some different strengths and different uh, tendencies, different weaknesses. But we come in and out, we have the same God, we have the same practice, we have the same faith, we have the same belief, the same doctrine. And we can say we can go in and out from one to another, and we're still home. I appreciate your good attention. May God richly bless you and magnify this. Greatly enjoyed. My mind's been activated. I hope to study some things.
been edifying. Thankful to be here. Trust the Lord will continue His, his presence.